0: influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
1: Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Caroline Hyde. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show. I co-anchor with Scarlett Foo, Joe Weisenthal and Romain Bostick on Bloomberg Television. What you miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, my interview with Ginny Rametti. I sat down with the IBM CEO for a wide-ranging conversation as part of our new CEO Spotlight series. We talked about Rometty's vision for cloud computing at IBM and why she's betting big on the hybrid cloud in particular.
0: We are the number one hybrid cloud player now. And so that's what I want my name synonymous with.
1: And why IBM's hybrid product makes Amazon and Microsoft cloud allies
0: rather than direct competitors. They live in a world that ever you're going to have for sometimes your innovation will come from google amazon microsoft ibm and you're going to want to take advantage wherever innovation comes from and why she thinks being ceo of a major technology company comes with major responsibilities it's one thing to make these technologies but if you make them you better bring them safely into this world
1: but i started the interview by asking Ginny remetti about the state of ibm's cloud business and how ibm helps transform other companies and provide the infrastructure needed to get them to what she calls Chapter Two.
0: Well, it's interesting how you described how even you use technology yourself. You said we all have our apps, is what you said. And so the reason we ended up, and I ended up coining this Chapter Two, you know, there isn't anybody I meet that doesn't want to reinvent their company with their data. And always remember kind of interesting statistic 20% of the world's data is searchable, the other 80% is owned by companies. Hmm. So they really can reinvent themselves if they choose to use it so if you think about what was chapter one you you described it as i said beautifully because in chapter one what did everyone do first they felt a lot of pressure from a lot of new entrants to their industry right startups or those coming at them and everyone did what i would call customer facing apps right so whether it's on your phone and i would call it an outside in view of transformation so anything you could do to make how you interfaced with the company easier right so if you're the airlines if you're American Airlines really did a lot of things on the front end for customer service and the like that you would work on so outside in uh, customer apps in the beginning of the cloud and so and where would those all put those all those apps they would be out on a cloud so about 20% of I would say the cloud journey is past so now you say well why is there a chapter 2 what's so wrong what do, what do people need to do and if I give you an example you'll you'll I think see it because you do let's say you have insurance did you bought it on your on your phone wonderfully and you bought let's say it was car insurance or renters insurance and you were able to buy it well if you have a claim it should be just that simple But now when you go to do that, that kind of an app hits against all the current infrastructure in all of what you would call their either their legacy or their accrued assets or their mission critical systems that are out there. And those are pretty brittle and need to change. So chapter two is inside out. So what it means is those wonderful customer apps, they're bashing into these back ends that have to be just as flexible. So now you find chapter two and what clients are doing is they're saying, hey, from the inside, I wanna take all those applications I have and modernize them. And to do that though, I'm starting with mission critical work. Now I've got regulatory environments, security, all sorts of things. And they're gonna start with the world calls is a hybrid cloud. And one other thing they're gonna have to do Because all that experimentation that happened on the front end, all those apps, I call them, uh, and many clients do too, random acts of digital. Lots of great (laughs) ideas all over the place, but they're not connected together. (laughs) So now I've got to scale AI too. So I'm going to move to a hybrid cloud. I'm going to scale AI. And that's really what chapter two is. And I just, I'll, I'll finish that with the, the idea of a hybrid cloud is why. And if you think about it, um, because the world might say, well, no, 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 the whole world will move to a cloud. Well, the whole world wasn't born yesterday. <laughs> and so it's just like if you have a house and, well, you have a choice. You could smash it down and build the whole thing brand new. Or like any client, they have a lot of things they've built already. So they're going to renovate them a piece at a time and they're going to find from chapter one they already have five or 15 clouds they're working with Mm -hmm. and they say wow what do i do now i've got five to 15 clouds i'm going to renovate piece by piece all my mission critical work and what a hybrid cloud does and this is why we bought red hat it is the answer to build something once run it anywhere so think of it as a horizontal platform that can run any cloud on your premise private cloud and it really frees you to have a lot of flexibility for the future.
1: And it's forced you to be a lot more flexible as a business to a certain extent when you're working with, shall we call them, frenemies as such. Before everyone was going, well, where are you versus Microsoft versus Amazon on the cloud? Now you're working with Microsoft right. and Amazon. How are those partnerships going?
0: Yes, yeah, because think about that's a very good point because this has always been something we have felt so true about it's what the customer needs is what you do first right in our clients and they live in a world that ever you're going to have for sometimes your innovation will come from Google Amazon Microsoft IBM and you're gonna want to take advantage wherever innovation comes from and that's actually the idea in the way the world is going so on one hand you want to build something once run it anywhere and the second part is you want to get to innovation wherever it is and so like in almost every business you have competition and cooperation. And in this case, and again, when we bought Red Hat, because it's a platform that goes across all of them, absolute commitment, it's open source, the world's leader to run, and it does run on those platforms, and absolute commitment to the integrity of that. And that's really for our clients.
1: Would you still see Microsoft, Amazon as competition? How do you make your name synonymous with cloud in the same
0: way that they have almost become? It isn't, our name, we are the number one hybrid cloud player now. And so what, what I, that's what I want my name synonymous with. Mm. Number one hybrid cloud, best partner to help make you a cognitive enterprise. And that's a company that has got data and AI re- infused in all of the way it does its work. Because if you do that, you'll have to have a hybrid cloud underneath it. So I'm really about that digital transformation journey. And that means, at times, uh, you'll work with me. And by the way, you'll have many clouds. You already have many clouds. Most clients, I'll say to, I've had so many, I'll say, how many clouds do you think you have? They'll say, two. Come back, I have seven. (laughs) You don't realize what you have here. And so the idea behind that is connect all of that together and then when you speak of just cloud alone, the IBM cloud, which is both private mm-hmm. and public, I mean, we really are the best cloud for mission critical work because of the security end to end that's there and our ability to take mission critical apps and you have to understand how those work. That is our sweet spot.
1: Are clients getting it?
0: I think they're, oh, I know they're getting it. So take an example, um, Delta, take an example of AT&T. Uh, AT&T, we just recently announced, it is to move all of AT&T business, all of their applications onto the IBM hybrid cloud. And as well with Red Hat, it will be out into the network. So your network services come faster. And that is exactly what it is that we're able to do. Delta Airlines, a lot of work done with them on, as you front end deal with your customers. Mm. Now, modernize the back end to connect those two. So when you rebook an airline, you'd like to have, not only can you rebook, every associated thing that a passenger would want uh, done. And those are all those back-end systems connected to that real time while you're up in the air. So uh, Delta, big strong proponent of Red Hat as well. And so it's Red Hat and IBM, mission critical, hybrid, multi-cloud, multi-cloud on open systems so you get lots of innovation and it's mm-hmm. very secure. Red Hat,
1: 34 billion, amazing acquisition. You're someone who, knew about acquisitions, you are someone who helped integrate, for example, PwC's IT consulting yes. business within IBM previously. How are you ensuring that the integration can be as smooth with Red Hat?
0: Yes. Well, for, first off, a couple of words. I, I don't think as the word is, quote, integration as a traditional, mm-hmm. um, and it's related to what you just asked me a minute ago. So Red Hat, as I said, is the world's number one number one open source company, and together we're the number one hybrid cloud provider. So when we acquired Red Hat, which, by the way, um, it is a very fair price. They are a very good company and a very profitable company, which is not usually high growth, high profit, is not what you associate <laughs> with some of a cloud company. And not with the recent
1: IPOs. So either. <laughs>
0: an outstanding firm built over many years. And IBM's worked with Red Hat over 20 years. We were the original folks that really helped propel open source onto the stage. We put a billion dollars into something called Linux back then yeah. because The architecture of the future, it has been decided now. And I know these are, you know, just not everyone is uh, familiar with all the tech pieces of this, but it will be Linux, it will be this thought of containers on top, and something called Kubernetes that moves the containers around. Just like you thought of the past, the internet, and how it was run, this is the future architecture. I think that war is over. That is the architecture of the future. Hmm. That is what Red Hat is. And they are the number one there. And so when we, when we acquire them, we have two roles with them. I think of it as horizontal, vertical. On one hand, we are leaving them as a separate and distinct unit. And I have had plenty of experience, as you said. I've done 60 acquisitions in my time. And because for a really important reason, They will participate and continue to be the leader in open source, so that's a very different community out there. Mm. They must remain committed and neutral to that. The second is, they have to be on all our competitors' platforms. So I want them to see firm neutrality on that. So they will work and put themselves on all those platforms as they do today. And then what IBM does, so think of them as um, completely non-biased. IBM will be opinionated. So what we will do is we take their products, we make the best mission critical cloud, private and public, and that's what clients need. And I have already built all my software to take advantage of theirs. So you can actually now take IBM's entire key software portfolio and it can run anywhere. To a client, that is a dream, to be able to renovate. All the mission critical apps of the world are built on IBM. So we now own the origin We own the starting point. The world is already more than half Linux, which is what Red Hat is. And then the destination is that architecture. This is technology we're talking
1: about, very cutting-edge technology, but it's also about people and the integration of people and understanding cultures and workforces. And I know this is something that IBM's thinking about a lot at the moment is how to keep people continuing to thrive and perhaps renew themselves, reskill themselves, refit themselves. How are those at Red Hat, those at IBM, personally able to ensure that they're fit for purpose as you scale the business,
0: as you reorientate to the hybrid cloud? Yes, so if I can broaden this whole topic of skills, um, I feel really strongly about this right now because there's no doubt we're in a digital era. And there is no doubt in my mind that this technology will change a hundred percent of jobs mm. now I said change hundred percent yeah because there's a lot of people that want to talk about this job will go away that job will go away to me that isn't the issue the issue is that it's going to change how you and I do our work almost all of us are going to interact with these technologies and it's happening fast and so We've really, I consider the word responsible stewardship, Hmm. so it's one thing to make these technologies, but if you make them, you better bring them safely into this world. Yeah. And part of that means you prepare society, your own people, and then the world at large. And when I say that, the part I worry the most about is this can't be a world, cannot, where it all goes to the few people where the benefits do, and that you have to have a college degree or a PhD. Now, I have, I have an entire workforce of that, but that can't be the world. And this is to me why you start to have have and have nots. And this mm. is what's led to a lot of unrest in the world, where people go, you know, my future is not better than the current. So I want to change. I don't like this anymore. So we are really focused on um, both that reason that society wants these technologies and sees goodness in them, and then the second thing's gotta be that, hey, we have a workforce shortage. We, you know, There's two million cyber people missing in the world that, that are needed. So this commitment on skills, both for my employees, but broader. So let me first do the broader and then come back. Um, the broader has been about, how do you make this an inclusive era? Yeah point blank inclusive, so that's apprenticeships. This is returnships for people who've left the workforce and are afraid to come back. But we've also started something called New Collar, and we're working 500 companies around the world. Think of it as a six year high school, four years high school, two year community college. You get your high school and associate degree at the same time, and we've been at this eight years now. 150,000 kids around the world, 16 countries, coming through these schools almost all first generation, never gone to university before. No one in their family has. And 15% of my hiring in the U.S. last year were these were these young people. And this idea that they do great cloud work, cyber work, and by the way, and many of them end up going back to school for their four-year degrees in parallel. It's about this country where there's a will, there's a way. And so, But this is also solving a need I have. Yeah. And so we're making and taking a whole swath of society that otherwise might not have seen themselves in the digital era into it now I flip to my own employees Um, we invest about a half a billion a year but I will tell you this has been a really interesting journey and today I can tell you that 8 out of 10 IBMers have the skills not just fit for today fit for the future and so this has been all about um, actually moving skills to the center of your people plan and not all companies are like that this is not just education It really starts with telling people, um, first, be transparent. Mm. Is your skill going to be in demand in the future or not? Is it abundant or scarce? And if you know where you fit there, and then line up how you promote and reward people against that. So it kind of makes a natural thing that people want to move. And then, you know, the world is so consumable. You got to make career and education as easy as your Netflix. And in fact, our learning platform—it's <laughs> learning on Netflix. I mean, it's not Netflix, but it looks like it. It knows who you are, your role, and we have got 50,000 people a day taking education in that way. And, and they're comfortable. They're not worried, particularly the well, older
1: generation of people. Look, it, this
0: is an interesting point you make because now that we've been through this transformation, now a good well it's been a good six years now i can tell you with a hundred percent it is age irrelevant that people are able to move to new skills independent of age and the number one thing it's changed the number one thing i hire for Mm. the number one thing we hire for now is propensity to learn because it does not matter about age it is about if you think of it now in tech the half-life of a skill is less than five years so if i hire you with a skill today it's not gonna matter in a very short period of time. Yeah. So I'm, I want you to be curious and want to learn. If you are, no worries. I'll take care of the rest, and that to me is a profound point, and I think it's what every company needs to look at. Is
1: it something that you're talking about with other executives as you meet your clients? And I know it's something that actually IBM's done a lot of research on, talking to executives and finding out what their main concern is, and it seems
0: to be talent. It is talent, and you know, I just um, I, I kicked off the uh, Frankfurt Auto Show, and while I did talk about technology, one of the things. I really dwelled in on them with is about these skills because there is a perception that to get the new tech skills you have to buy it all replace it or buy it all that's wrong mm. because there is this intersection that people have to have of actually knowledge of an industry and process and the new skill and so you do have to look inside outside but then you have to create the skill that is integrated here
1: join bloomberg in san francisco or virtually on may 7th for the future investor Then I spoke with Ginni Rometty about the drawbacks that can come with rapid technological growth and how we saw that play out with this past year's very public, vocal tech clash.
0: Society does not trust these technologies or us You can't operate. We
1: also talked about the prospect of regulation coming for big tech and what sort
0: of legislation she thought could be enacted without stymieing growth. The consumer does have a right to know what data you have, be able to delete it, correct it if it's there, and if someone misuses it, there should be regulation and liability for that.
1: And how she thinks about
0: charting the future at a 108-year-old company. And this company has had to be reinvented many times. It's something many other companies have yet to face. I started by asking
1: Janine Rometty about, well, how she sees her role ensuring a diverse and inclusive workforce and what can be done to make tech a more diverse industry?
0: Yeah, well, when I deeply believe in this responsible stewardship of technology, um, we could talk about the first piece of it is that people have got to trust these systems. The second is that you have to prepare society for them, but the third is around diversity and inclusion. And, you know, it's funny for IBM, it's as long as I can remember, it's what the firm has been built on. I mean, even longer from its very beginning. And so it has been, really, I've grown in that environment that it, you know, the first woman senior vice president was 1943 and she was 27 years old, all right? And then I fast forward, you know, in the time in America here was for uh, the civil rights amendment, we were 11 years before that had declared all of the same points. And so it has always been about, you have got to get the best workforce. Mm-hmm. And, and it has been about a set of values that is to be, so people can come to work and give their best. That's really what it is, give their best that's out there. So then you jump to your point about, well, then when you build these technologies, you have to build them with a diverse workforce, mm-hmm. or especially with artificial intelligence. Yeah. You you have to represent, uh, one of the biggest things is around bias. I mean, we've built a lot of technology to identify if there is bias. Now, now, there's good bias and bad bias. Everything almost everything is biased. We bias it on our own values. Like, you know, we built something called Watson for Oncology, treats cancer patients. And I can remember someone said to me, Well, but you've only trained it with three three institutions. We're like, yeah, they're the three best in the world. Is that not a great idea? I mean, did you want the internet to train it? Yeah. I mean, we're talking about serious decisions. And so this idea that who trains things and so you want a diverse workforce, um, otherwise you will get, you know, there've been many examples of this out in the world already of of technology that's come out and it's been completely oblivious whether it's, oblivious to whether it's gender or whatever it is, it's made the wrong decisions. So you do need a diverse workforce there. I think that's fascinating that you're talking about trust,
1: ethics, bias, the things that sort of are plaguing technology within the US but worldwide in general at the moment some of the regulators are suddenly getting worried about do you feel that corporate leadership in the US has taken this on board that we're starting to see this responsibility of businesses to understand these some of the jarring that technology
0: brings with its growth yeah look I, I think this is a really key a key point and it's got everything business needs to because if society does not trust these technologies or us, you can 't operate I mean i 've always felt the reason IBM 's one hundred and eight years old is society's given us a license to operate, mm. and you can only do that by your actions and they decide right if your actions what you say, you do, and you hold to your values and I think of that we manage ninety percent of the world 's financial transactions, the credit card transactions, eighty percent of the airline reservations, your your uh, mobile phones so you've got to trust, and every company has got to trust that we don't handle that data wrong. So I say to everybody, first off, you got to have a set of principles. Now, I feel we'd always lived by them, but we wrote them down because I said, hey, in this time, we better write them down, be sure everybody understands. Yes, we feel like we've always lived by them. You got to articulate them, live by them, be willing to be audited, and get, everyone's got to generally agree to these. And, And to me, they're very simple. The first one is, the purpose of the technology is to augment what man does. OK, now, um, man is in manhood, man, mankind. Um, I build it, so I have something to say in my people, what they do. The second is, and this is really key to your question, that data, its ownership, its insights, and especially true with AI, the models, they belong to the owner of the data, all right? They belong to the creator. And the third is, for these technologies to be trusted, they must be explainable, free of bias. and so. We've, I've learned this through, as we bring out these technologies to doctors, to actuaries, their first question when they see an answer is, why? Mm. So you have to explain it to them or they won't trust it. So A, you have to have a set of principles and live by them. And they're deeply rooted in your own values, by the way. And I think this is, uh, trust is one of the determining factors of this era right now. And so you've got to be clear what they are, you have got to live by them, and so when you know, in history, when people have asked us, a government would say, could I get into your software to see th-? No, we put yeah. no, never, never, never put a back door in our software. Or when in the United States, when we were asked, would we support legislation that said there should be, if we knowingly had child sex trafficking on our cloud, would we be liable? That only took me five seconds to answer. Yes, knowingly. These are based on a set of values, and so, Society has to know you're going to do that. So I think in this day and age, being clear, and then there should be regulation, but I call it precision regulation, Mm. because I am very afraid if if it's overreacted, you'll derail the whole digital economy, but go after the bad actors. And so, you know, the consumer does have a right to know what data you have, um, be able to delete it, correct it if it's there, and if someone misuses it, there should be regulation and liability for that, particularly things against the law.
1: Build trust for us in the next paradigm shift, in quantum computing, which we keep yeah. getting so excited about and nothing really becomes tangible, in, in blockchain, which we all just associate with crypto and then worry no, it's just oh an no, asset don't bubble. don't do that. Don't yeah, do exactly. That. Yeah. T- t- I mean, so straighten it for us. Well,
0: well for, you know, when, you, when I look at the future of technologies coming, now we are all about applying them to business, but we build some of the world's leading technologies in, in together here. and. Um, Yes, cloud and AI, everyone talks about that today. Artificial intelligence and cloud, and much more to still be done there, by the way. But let's we'll put park those for a minute. The next two, blockchain and quantum. Now, as often is the case with new technologies, people overestimate them in the beginning and mm-hmm. then underestimate them in the long term, as it's said. Um, but, but blockchain, if, I had a, if you said, Jenny, what's one word you would associate with blockchain? I would say trust. Put crypto. That's a use. Put that aside. And it even has to use the right kind of blockchain, which is not always the case today. Um, What blockchain, my simple thing, what blockchain should do, it will put trust between parties who don't even know each other. So to make trusted transactions and it would do what the internet did for communications between lots of parties. And so um, a great example, if I can, on, um, on, on trust and blockchain, because what it allows you to do is you and I can share a transaction together. I don't have to see anything you don't want me to see. And once a transaction's completed, it cannot be erased. You know? So think of, a, think of a ledger, right? Because yeah, you know, yeah. why do we each keep our own checking accounts? And do we trust what the bank says? Well, today we probably do. In the old <laughs> days, we would each balance our checkbooks and, and the like. And if I, if, if I said to you, hey, you have $100, he's like, let me check my own notes here, right? So it's the same idea of a blockchain. It's what it's doing. And so a big application right now is um, food safety. Okay, one out of 10 people get sick, 600 million people, more in the world get some form of illness from food safety. That's a pretty big problem and costs a lot of money. You've seen it when there have been recalls on spinach and the like. We started something called, um, it's called Food Trust. And think about this on Walmart, Carrefour. These are competitors out in the world, all being willing to join on. Nestle, Unilever, uh, Driscoll, Strawberries and the like. And what they're doing is they're saying, no, no, we will all put our data on here about you know what row in the farm this came from, mm-hmm. so from farm to fork. So when there is an issue, and, and my goodness, we've done t- millions and millions of transactions already through this, um, I can pinpoint where the bad spinach is versus call it all back, because a third of the food's wasted in this world. Can you believe this? And yeah. so that's to me, that's one. And quantum, if I, you want me, I jump over to quantum. So just as I said, blockchain, think about the word trust. Quantum will solve problems that today the traditional computers, no matter how fast they are, cannot solve. And it's because traditional computers, 0 and a 1. We all learn that about a bit in a computer. Yeah. Quantum, quantum bits have infinite states. So they're for the kinds of problems that today, even if you have the best supercomputer, you really could never model. It would run forever. I'm exaggerating a little bit to show you that in that. Um, so, so let's take, it's the reason there's wet labs in biology as an example, because it's an approximation. Why do they still do live? They can't get an exact simulation done. So what quantum will do is things like the very first things will be drug discovery, yeah. material sciences, risk management, logistics, these are incredibly different. If you were to want to truly model a molecule of caffeine, you would need a computer a tenth the size of this planet if you actually wanted the actual simulation. So now, so we're, we've already, already with our quantum systems, we have made commercial ones available through a cloud because they operate at colder than outer space, and this is what quantum is. Um, things like you've got Daimler working on new materials like batteries and cars. JP Morgan uh, is working on things like how to price different kinds of options, how to look at risk differently, and drug discovery. So we've got a huge network of clients because now's the time to start to get used to it. Mm. Um, Well, now you say the word trust. I, I would add only one other side of quantum. There is a dark side. One dark side of it is quantum can break some of traditional encryption that has protected most of the world. Uh, In fact, we announced some new systems last night that they are to prepare for quantum already. So already our security in them to to secure what's inside our systems that that run all those mission critical systems are quantum safe. And so we've been equally building something called lattice cryptography, which is a kind of encryption that quantum cannot break. And this to me goes back to responsible stewardship. If I'm gonna build a tool that's that powerful, I owe it to society to be sure if it's got a downside, that I also address the downside. So we put as much effort into that, into then creating something that prevents that thing from being that powerful. So both sides. I love the passion with which you speak about these future opportunities, the impact that can
1: be made. As we see this shift, this change to second change, what? Well, how have, what are the experiences that you've had that make you the right leader for this quantum shift that we see in computing and in IBM's very future? Yeah. What is it that you've learned that from your predecessors or from your own background, your, your long tenure at IBM?
0: Yeah, well, look, I do think of myself as a steward. I mean, this is a 108-year-old company, and I have been blessed to learn from many of the people that came before me. Um, so I don't answer that question lightly. And, and this company has had to be reinvented many times. It's something many other companies have yet to face. It's one thing to put out new products, but it is something else when the competitive landscape attacks your core business models and you have to develop a new one. Core business models are the most difficult thing to have to come to, to build a new one. Um, and so I can just now start to reflect on a lot of this. And it's funny when people say, what have you learned? and I would say that one of the very first things is, be clear in your mind what does not change. What does not change. And so to me, what doesn't change is the purpose of the company. So IBM's purpose has always been to be essential to the world in some way. So I've been really clear with my team what doesn't change. So kind of that's really, to me, my first lesson was be clear what the purpose is, because that is the core around what people do. The second thing, though, is then don't protect your past, though. Other than that, don't protect your past. And so in my time uh, today, 50% of IBM's $80 billion is new products and services within the last four to five years. 50%. So we have had to divest of $10 billion of commoditizing businesses, because if you don't, you don't have the fuel to reinvest in the new. We've done 60 acquisitions, and then most currently, Red Hat that's in here. And the cloud is $20 billion. And so IBM today, you know, some people, they'll ask me, or I'll kind of quiz, and I'll say, well, what percentage of IBM do you think is hardware? You can imagine the range I get. Today, it is 9%. Now, an important 9% does very important things. But we are cloud solutions, services, software. That's 90% of what IBM does. And so that idea of don't protect your past, because it has to enable you to move from those things. And then the third thing to me is you won't be, well, it may be a surprise to you, because when people say, you know, there's a lot of talk about the portfolio. Like I just said, don't protect your past so you can build a new portfolio and new business models. But the third thing I learned, and I learned it the hard way, if a company's going to change, you've got to change how work is done in the company. I, I would say one of my my biggest, you could call it a, a mistake and a learning, you know, I could see the world changing so quickly. And, and as, as our clients can see this around them new competitors things happening faster startups everywhere and i would say to the team go faster go faster and you know what i did i succeeded in exhausting them and and i realized that unless leadership does something to change how work is done they can't really work faster you have to put in and it's not like you're telling people a new process but this new world and, and i really This applies to every industry. This is to me perhaps my largest lesson and gift to my colleagues or others who are in transformation. I say, look, you've got to start with, in this consumer world, everything you touch is so easy, they expect, the world expects it in everything, even if you do something complex. So that meant for us design thinking. We hired 20,000 designers because, hey, if you're in engineering culture in particular, you build something that can handle all situations, but that's complex. You gotta start with what does the end user like and will make it wonderful and empathy and build from there in. That's design thinking. Then comes Agile. Because if you don't do Agile properly, you build a mess fast. Instead, you have to learn to get this right, then add more, add more. That's true Agile. We have now 200,000 people working in Agile. And then the next thing was co-location. And then it was new tools. And then it was new real estate. And then it was new ways to motivate people, not an appraisal system. You're an A, a B, or a C, or a 1, a 2, or a 3. We abolished all that. So that then freed people to work in a new way and understand. So that to me was the greatest learning of a transformation.
1: That's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our daily market close show from 3.30 to 5pm on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5pm streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.